Welcome back to Shaping Ash, episode two. What do we do? What do we do? I think everyone asked this question after the Alameda fire. My mom, my grandma, and I asked too. We were at a loss. It felt like we were stumbling through the smoke in the aftermath. Our moves were choppy, our steps unclear. I think a lot of people felt this way, and we had to hold on to others for support. This episode is about how people in the community navigated the question, what do we do, during the fire and its fallout. There are three parts to this episode, starting with part one, what happened. In this first part, we're going to go through the details of the Alameda fire, hearing from folks who were on the front lines. Heads up, if hearing details about the fire might be upsetting to you, I recommend you skip to part two. When the Labor Day fires hit the Rogue Valley in September 2020, locals sprung into action. On the ground, people fought the fire. The fire department was stretched very thin, and in some cases, people's efforts to save their homes ended up saving their whole block. We're going to start with a story like that from Lucas Weedman. Okay, maybe like an introduction? Um, Yeah, my name is Lucas Weedman. I'm 27 years old. I've been working for the Rogue Action Center for almost two years, and um, the Almeida fire burned right up to my property line. Mm. Yeah, starting with the fire as a starting point, like, what was your experience that day? Um, yeah, so <clears throat> my, um, my wife and I worked out kind of near White City in Central Point, so like 20-minute drive, and like we were getting notices here and there. Nothing was very direct. Nothing was like, you need to evacuate right now. You need to go home. They were just like, oh, a brush fire has started in Ashland. And then I had a friend who works in talent and he was, he called me and he was like, you need to go, you need to leave your work and get home now. And so like, thank, thank God I he did that or else I probably wouldn't have been home as quickly as I was. When Lucas got to Talent, air tankers were flying low over his house. They didn't know where the fire was, but they knew it was close. And so I started packing up everything that I could, uh, making sure the animals were ready to go, all of our, like, what I thought would be the personal belongings. And my, my wife comes home, she was in a panic. She, she wanted to leave immediately right then and there, but I was like, no, we have to get more stuff in the car. Yeah. And, um,. So the sheriff knocks on everyone's door and tells us to leave. And so, yeah, we we get in our cars and start driving away. And to get, like, a quarter mile down the road took two, two hours just because it was so gridlocked. There was really only one road to leave town, and it was, like, this pioneer road, um, like, this backside of talent, one-lane road, and it was just a gridlock. They stopped at a friend's house in Medford, got evacuated again, and then stayed the night in Rogue River. Then Lucas got a call from a friend back in Talent saying his house was still standing, but that he should hurry back. 
We get home. Thankfully, everything's still standing. There's a smoldering pile of rubble right next to my house and, like, just, like, melted storage units and stuff. And so I go over with my hose and, like, I'm trying to hose everything down. I find some hot spots where if I spray, like, everything, it's just smoke. Next to his house, storage units had burned down and smoldering debris had the potential to reignite. He watered the area with his hose for a few hours, took a break, and came back. And as soon as I walk up close, I can see like an orange glow. And so I like throw down my hose, run around the fence to get closer. And I could smell gasoline like in the open air, like walking outside. It was like I was standing right next to the stovetop with it turned on full. And it was so the the smoldering pile had like moved, traveled on the ground and like reignited the one storage unit that hadn't completely burned to the ground. And it was filled with accelerants. It was filled with like blue rhino tanks, like all this electrical equipment. It was this guy's like weird workshop or something. And it, I, I like could, I could see in and it was like these flames were licking all the sides coming out of the storage unit. He used up three fire extinguishers. Then his hose. My eyebrows were getting singed, and I couldn't hardly stand there anymore. It was just too hot, and I was watering from on top of my ladder. And the flames were above my house. I'm, I live in a two-story house, and the flames were literally above it. Oh and I'm, like, down on the ground trying to squirt water on this fire. And thank God the fire department comes and pulls me away and, like, puts it out. And they're like, <laughs> okay, cool. Now uh, give us a call if, if it reignites. And I was, like, at 1 in the morning. So I was, like, stayed up all morning that one night. But I'd go out routinely and, like, water it at, like, 3 a.m. And it was insane. And the fire department said if we hadn't been home to call them immediately, that our house would definitely have burned down. Like, 250%. And then we, we live so close to our neighbors that they said that our, our close neighbors also probably would have lost their homes, too. Because none of them were home. No one was home. We were like the only people home on our block besides our neighbors that were like across and down the street. After the fires, I heard a few stories like this. People whose homes the fires inched dangerously close to, who, because they stayed behind to put out wind-carried embers, it may have saved their home or their whole block. Certainly, there are all kinds of stories of heroism when you talk to people about you know, the guy who stayed in talent when he shouldn't have been there and kept the fire, put out the small fires that would have, could could certainly have created fire across Talent Avenue. Talent Avenue wound up being kind of the demarcation line. Things on, once on the northern side burned, things on the southern side didn't. And maybe it was because there were a couple of people who were there putting fires out when they sparked on the other side. You know, people did amazing things, but it was an enormous firestorm. That's Representative Pam Marsh. She represents District 5, which covers southern Jackson County. I mean, everybody knew this was going to be a dangerous weekend. You could see the weather forecast statewide. We knew there were problems ahead. And the state fire marshal had actually put out a warning saying, we are not going to be able to back you up if something happens. And our fire started at about 11, 1030, mid-morning, um, in Ashland, and then you know, over the really raged over the next nine miles by midnight. To better understand how the fire spread and the challenges in curbing and extinguishing it, 
I talked to the fire chief in talent. Yeah, hi, I'm Charlie Hanley. I'm the fire chief of Jackson County Fire District Number 5, and I've been with the fire district now for uh, over five years. Um, on September the 7th, the temperature in Denver, Colorado, was just about 100 degrees. Within 24 hours, that temperature went to 30 degrees. It was a 70-degree temperature shift, went from... Uh, the highest temperatures ever recorded to the lowest temperatures ever recorded. That, the pressure that was created by that atmospheric disturbance, brought the winds that drove the Almeida fire. Fallen winds, also called Santa Ana winds or Chinook winds, occur when stable high-pressure air is forced down high mountain passes. The air is warmed and dried by adiabatic compression and can affect areas many, many miles away in this case, a thousand miles away. The valley had also been in drought for months, with late summer heat, dangerously low humidity, and dry fuel buildup. It's all of it all combined. It's the drought conditions, it's the exposures, it's all of those pieced together make up the net. It's, it's tons per acre of decadent brush. It's no water. There's so many things that make it up. These conditions created an extremely hot and fast-moving fire. It moved down Bear Creek from its starting point in Ashland through Talent and Phoenix. Our fire was entirely an urban-based wildfire. Started in a, in, a, in a conventional neighborhood, burned up the asphalt core of our communities using the wick of the creek and the vegetation along the creek to really push the fire further out. Fire was in the city of Talent, and then ultimately in the city of Phoenix. It, within 10 hours, uh, there was uh, one structure burning every 15 seconds. So there were 240 structures an hour, 2,400 structures in the first 10 hours. So we're talking about a complete and wanton destruction of, of wood frame, aluminum, concrete buildings. Concrete is fired at 3,000 degrees. So therefore you can see that so, fire that's so hot that it'll destroy a concrete building is very, very hot. The fire department was spread extremely thin with only 50 firefighters. And when the Slater and Oban chain fires sprung up in the area, they were down to 25. Services immediately lost were power, data, gas, telephone connections, and ultimately water. Water scarcity became a major issue in fighting the fire. You could see melted hoses still attached to fire hydrants like they the fire was too fast and the water pressure was so low because of everyone leaving their sprinklers on um that yeah they had to turn off the water to re like get more water pressure because the hoses weren't working for them and so the fire swept through so fast that they had to ditch their hoses and you could see right after the fire that they were like so, like five or six melted, like shriveled up hoses attached to fire hydrants. Few people are on wells. Most people are on, on this single transmission line. So as soon as you have a disruption, like a thousand structures burning where every one of their water mains is pouring out in the street. Right. So all the pressure and all the volume is gone. It's leaving. It, and so there's nothing left available for the firefighters. And so you have that, and then there's also the demand of, uh, uh, you know, the fire flows. 
tens of thousands of gallons a minute required to extinguish these fires. So, so we relayed on shuttles and drafting, basically finding a static water supply or, ident or an identified water supply, and we draft out of that source to refill our fire engines. That turnaround time is roughly 20 to 30 minutes. So if you're losing a structure one every 15 seconds and it takes you 20 to 30 minutes to get to a water supply, this is factual. You cannot equivocate this. It takes so long to drive there, so long to fill it up, turn around and go back. So if you're driving a mile or two or three to get water, then to turn around by that time, how many structures are on the ground? Oh, the water, the, the pipes were so hot that the water came out boiling. Mm -hmm. Like the fire, like they couldn't even hardly use the water at some points because it came out boiling because the ground was burning. Yeah, there was so much spalled concrete and so much superheated areas that water would steam and boil if it was exposed. Yeah, I mean, it's only 212 degrees. You talk about things that are burning at, you know, 1,200 to 2,000. So I'm sure that that could have happened. I asked Chief Hanley why air retardant was dropped on talent during the fire. Those particular air tankers are called VLATs, very large air tankers. They are not designed to drop on cities. Mm. That was a desperate act to slow the spread of this fire. This is a, a, the, the fact that we even had anything available was, was just pure luck. And because it was a straight line fire, they were able to drop some retardant. But again, um, this is a very, very hazardous thing to do to start dropping aircraft in an evacuation on roads and, and, and houses and power lines. So it's a very limited application. Stretched absolutely thin, the fire department and talent actually caught fire. I remember hearing about this from my mom, who was stuck in a gridlock a block away. Well, there was a 100-foot wall of flames burning towards this fire station. This roof was, has over, had over 100 burn holes in it. We were burning vehicles in the back. So this, this whole fire station was threatened. There was fire right up to the edge of all these walls here. And just so happened that one of our off-duty firefighters came in and took the last piece of fire apparatus out and actually put the fire out around it and saved this building. Otherwise, it would have been on the ground within minutes. The fire department could only do its best to corral it with limited resources and firefighters. Another major issue was evacuation. In talent, no evacuation alert was ever issued and not every neighborhood had emergency services telling them to evacuate. No, they never sent anything for talent. The first alert I got was for Phoenix. And it wasn't until months later that another news agency confirmed that no emergency was sent for talent. This is April Ehrlich. She did a lot of reporting for JPR on the ground leading up to and after the fire. So with regards to the uh, evacuation alerts issue, mm -hmm. um, I interviewed folks at Talent about that. So the county has this alert system, and they had this plan in place from 10 years ago or so where they were like, your people will tell us if we need to do an alert system to everybody. Well, Talent at that time lost its police chief and didn't have a city manager the two people who were supposed to be in charge of the situation when it happened. I think the, the county had an emergency alert system, 
but you still have to set it off. You have to have the right people available to issue those alerts. And I think that's where the flaw was, is that the right people weren't actually issuing the alerts. And there was also a lot of confusion as to what was actually happening on the ground. So the right people to set off evacuation alerts in talent were not in place when the fire came. This meant some neighborhoods had no warning. Others got conflicting orders not to evacuate because of traffic, even as the fire barreled towards them. But people in, in for the bulk of the fire in Talent, Phoenix, Jackson County, got virtually nothing, uh, no official notifications. And they got warned by Facebook posts and friends calling them up and people pounding on their doors. And that's part of the reason why it's amazing that we did not have more deaths than that we had, because it was all people helping people. So people, as you know, people were bitter about that. They still are bitter about the fact that they got very little notification. Thousands ended up in intense gridlocks as the fire burned past them. So when we got to 99, um, we can see the fire burning in the Greenway. Like we could, It's right in front of us, and right. there's helicopters dumping water on it and now yeah yeah and now i'm thinking about how in paradise people got stuck in their cars as the fire came and they burned alive in their cars and now i'm thinking oh my god is that gonna be us you know i so i have this story of a grandmother and their son that they got trapped i don't know where but they were on i-5 in a gridlock and the grandma was freaking out she didn't know what to do and literally just stood there as fire was like engulfing the car on either side of the highway and so these sheriffs came and like pulled them out of the car and like took the grandma and the grandson away and and, like axel the little boy we like were in the same building together and we um like i heard their that was their evacuation story and yeah it just was insane like yes the water was an issue but the the fire was way too fast moving for it to almost be an issue like the winds were like 50 mile per hour winds and just the fact that you see those shriveled up hoses it really makes me think that those 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 firefighters could have done absolutely nothing and there's like a lot of discrepancy about yeah like they saved the nice houses and let the other ones burn and stuff but it was like literally the path of the wind carried it and the only reason my house was saved was because the wind wasn't angled a couple degrees in another direction it's like i'm yeah that's what i think 75 percent of the structures that burned were mobile homes and trailers After losing these neighborhoods and seeing which other homes were still standing, I felt some bitterness I didn't know where to place. I felt, like many others, that mobile home neighborhoods were neglected over higher-income housing in managing the fire spread. But I have since learned that the fire was too fast to stop it from hitting these areas, that the edges of the fire were so precarious, and there's more to why mobile homes were located in the most vulnerable areas in the first place. Homes, housing, property is developed in high-risk areas, and those high-risk areas tend to go to low-income people. If you look at the Almeida fire, 
it burned through the Bear Creek Greenway, which was an overgrowth of blackberry bushes. And along that greenway, there were mobile home parks. And so we disproportionately saw mobile home parks burn in that fire. The reason why those mobile homes existed there was because the property values were lower. And so we're going to continue to see natural disasters hitting people where there are low property values because they're in areas that are susceptible to those natural disasters. The thing about m- motorhomes, mobile homes, manufactured homes is in a typical configuration, they are in low-lying areas, they are one way in and one way out, they are crammed together in a very tight space. So if you think about a fire burning in a confined area in one direction, driven by a wind, there's only one way in and one way out, and these you have these very vulnerable structures all lined up in a row. Much the same as Paradise. 10,000 manufactured homes burned approximately in that area in that fire. Very narrow area, high density. We certainly heard reports afterwards that there were situations in which a manufactured home park was just abandoned because the need was so great to get people out of the next park up the road that that's how we needed to use the emergency resources that we had. But the speed with which that fire progressed really put the emphasis on strategic decisions, like how do we corral this fire as a whole rather than the ability to focus on specific locations of the fire. After the first 24 hours, the fire took a dogleg to the west once it got into South Medford. It got into an area where the wind wasn't as intense, and it started to spread out. The wind slowed down, and crews were able to get containment on it. So if it had had continued to go with that intensity, it would have burned straight into the city of Medford. After the fire was out, smoke persisted for days. The fire left a black line through Talent and Phoenix. Whole neighborhoods were lost. And for those who were affected, a long process of recovery was just beginning. That's up next in part two of this episode, What Comes After. Shaping Ash is written and recorded by me, Isabella Roikas. Sound editing by Tejas Lear Hayden. Music in part one by Simone Ficker. Project management by Susanna Cole and Mark Iaconelli from The Hearth. Special thanks to Sara Cervantes and Hector Flores. Shaping Ash is funded by the Ford Family Foundation, The Hearth, and the lab of Professor Frank Chaplin at Oregon State University. Photos related to this episode, as well as links and transcripts, can be found on our website at shapingash.com. If you have any feedback or inquiries, you can email us directly at shapingash at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>